0: Classical ideas? This is Greg Soden. Recently, I started following a Twitter account with the moniker Dr. Death and Divinity because I was drawn into the vivid imagery of the Mexican folk saint Santa Muerte. The owner of that account is Dr. Andrew Chestnut, researcher and professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Condemned as macabre by the Vatican and satanic by bishops in Mexico, Santa Muerte is also the fastest growing new religious movement in the West. I truly had a blast during this conversation. Dr. Andrew Chestnut's energy, stories, and research are so important on the landscape of religious studies right now. I completely recommend his book, Devoted to Death. I also recommend his collaborative website, SkeletonSaint.com, which features essays and many columnists. I also love his Twitter account, at Chestnut one for his travel photography, his frequent updates, and his commentary. Dr. Andrew Chestnut earned his PhD in Latin American history from the University of California, Los Angeles, and was for a long time on the History Department faculty at the University of Houston. He became an internationally recognized expert on Latin American religious history. Professor Chestnut's early work, Born Again in Brazil, The Pentecostal Boom and the Pathogens of Poverty, was published by Rutgers University Press in 1997. His second book, Competitive Spirits, Latin America's New Religious Economy, arrived from Oxford University Press in 2003. But it is his most recent book, Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte, the Skeleton Saint, from Oxford University Press, that we discuss at length in this conversation. It is the first in-depth study of the Mexican folk saint in English and has received widespread media coverage. The book, to me, is an engaging and widely accessible book. It has an incredible story of the resurgence of Santa Muerte from 2001 to the present day and can be read by beginners and experts alike. We discussed a pretty comprehensive range of topics on Santa Muerte, from important figures to geography, the origin of the saint, narco-trafficking and police, and how to worship enjoy our conversation, and then get the book. I promise you will love it. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Andrew Chestnut on the topic of Santa Morte. Thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Oh,
1: it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So first of all, happy 10th anniversary on the research that you've been doing on the fastest growing new religious movement in the West, Santa Muerte. Congratulations, sir.
1: Thank you. It's it's really hard to believe that a decade has passed. It seems just like yesterday that that I commenced the research. But yeah, here we are 10 years later. I love it. And supposedly I moved on to, to other research, but I think I'm probably... Uh, sentence for life with this research.
0: Uh, That's fantastic. Um, Just if the audience doesn't know who you are, can you offer a brief introduction to who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. I am a professor of religious studies at Virginia Commonwealth University here in Richmond. I also hold the Bishop Walter Sullivan Chair in Catholic Studies. Uh, I am a Latin America specialist, so all of my research and publications focus on religion in Latin America. And uh, as we just referenced for the past decade, I have been researching Santa Muerte, the uh, Mexican skeletal folk saint, who happens to be now the fastest growing new religious movement in the West. And uh, my book, Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte, the Skeleton Saint, um, initially came out in 2012. Second edition uh, came out in 2017, and it remains the sole academic book in English.
0: That is so cool. So we are going to talk a lot about Santa Muerte, the bony lady, the pretty girl, the grim repress, beautiful girl, skinny lady, white girl, (laughs) the godmother, all of these fantastic names that are present throughout your book. For you as a scholar, what is it about death? Can you give me the essence of what motivates your scholarship on Santa Muerte and Santa Muertistas featured in your awesome book, Devoted to Death? Um,
1: Perhaps that I don't want to die. (laughs) (laughs) um, No... Actually, um, this topic kind of came to me you know, in a very kind of unexpected, surprising manner. I mean, death had really not been the focus of my previous research, so so it really was more in the context of a, of a couple years of research malaise. I was two years into a book project on the Virgin Guadalupe, the other great giant of the Mexican religious landscape, and just... Didn't have the same kind of passion that had buoyed my previous research. And so it's in this context that exactly 10 years ago, March 2009, I see the news that the Mexican army moves in on the uh, border with California and Texas and, and demolishes some, Santa Muerte, some 40 Santa Muerte shrines. Now, I've been going to Mexico since the early 1980s. So I was familiar with folks saying Santa Muerte. But had no idea, you know, why the Mexican army had moved Mm -hmm. in to raise her shrines. So, so it wasn't really, it really wasn't a mm, career long interest in death. It was more, it was more this just fantastic news that why is the Mexican army finding Santa Muerte so threatening that they need to bulldoze her shrines? That brought me to the topic of death. Now I'm continuing research on thanatological. Uh, matters, specifically Catholic death culture. But um, it was it was really more that, that news that the Mexican army is finding her quite threatening and offensive that really was the catalyst for my research.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So when I discovered you on Twitter, you and I have been very active together on Twitter lately, which has been fantastic. I've loved it. But I was drawn to your Twitter account because of my time living in Mexico in 2007 and 2008. And so I was a teacher down there in a private school in northern Mexico in the state of Coahuila. And at that time, the resurgence of Santa Muerte was only several years old. But I didn't know that at the time. I was just living there as a 23-year-old going about my day. Um, But I remember driving around in the country and seeing roadside shrines that I now wish that I had pulled over to inspect. So I can't help but wonder what was going on around me during these years when I was living in Mexico. What was the... Significance of those years and what was happening all around me that I was completely blind to.
1: Yeah, so so Santa, prior to two thousand one, Santa Muerte was was really the object of occult veneration. Really, only goes public in two thousand one when a quesadilla vendor from the most notorious Mexico City barrio, Tepito. Decides to put out her life-size six-foot effigy of Santa mm-hmm. Muerte um, outside of the quesadilla kitchen, to where she would sell quesadillas to neighbors and passersby. This was uh, Halloween, Halloween midnight, two thousand one, when she does this, and kind of marks the transition. Unintentional; she didn't intend, you know, to 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 make what had been this occult, clandestine devotion public. But but that's what ended up happening. So what you are seeing is kind of the early proliferation of public displays of devotion to Santa Muerte. And um, given where you were in northern Mexico, um, it's probably the case that a fair amount of those roadside altars were probably narco shrines, um, since she has a fairly robust following among... Um, Mexican drug cartel members, um, particularly in, you were in the state of, you said, Coahuila, right? Yeah. 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 Particularly there, um, around the capital city of, uh, of Torreon and such. So, um, yeah, that's, that's probably what you were seeing there is kind of the initial proliferation in a public manner, often related to, um, flourishing drug trade in Mexico.
0: One of the things we would do a lot is drive over to Monterey as well. What was that stretch of road like between Torreon and Mont- and Monterey? Like, what would we expect to see if we went uh, east a little bit?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I would. I would expect at that time. It's not. I'm not personally familiar with that particular stretch of road, but I would expect you know that that every so often you'd see these roadside shrines to Santa Muerte, and along with Santa Muerte, probably the other giants of the Mexican religious landscape, the Virgin Guadalupe, who, of course, is ubiquitous in Mexico, and the number one Catholic saint these days, and and in some ways a rival of Santa Muerte, St. Jude, the patron of lost causes. Um, it's also the case, though, that sometimes not, you know, I, I don't want to start off by overemphasizing the kind of relations with narcos but but sometimes you know you see all these these roadside crosses and shrines to people who die in traffic accidents and in some cases those also might be accompanied by a statuette or candles of santa muerte as well since we're talking about millions of devotees now there would be you know a diversity of expression of what you'd actually see there
0: Gotcha. Okay, so as a researcher, um, I mean, you're an American guy, you're from, you know, the north in the US. And you have gone into many, many shops that you describe in the book called botanicas. And you're on the search for Santa Muerte merchandise and followers. So what I'm curious about is as a researcher, how are you typically received when you step into a shop for the first time and start asking about the skeleton saint in your research travels? Like are people open to you? or people skeptical of you? How are you received?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question because sometimes, particularly in the context of of um, of white Americans, of gringos going into botanicas here in the United States, sometimes I see, people kind of uh expressing opinions that you know they they felt like they were on hostile territory they weren't well received if only they had spoke spoken spanish um yeah i i've i'm always well received but i also enter (laughs) these places prepared and when i remember i take a copy of my book devoted to death and and some of them actually sell my book as well so um you can imagine that immediately opens doors. Um, some of the botanic owners are, again, sell my book. They're familiar with the book. So my case is kind of special, right? I mean, I, I, uh, that opens doors. Um, and even in Mexico, where, where people didn't know me initially, um, wow, I, w- I would say in Mexico, it's just even easier to walk into botanicas because they're everywhere. Um, and, and even, you know, I, I would quickly explain that I was a researcher interested in Santa Muerte. Could you answer a few questions about sales of her paraphernalia? And I think, I think in, in my 10 years of research, I was only kind of reneged once, um, at a botanica where, where they seemed to be suspicious. So, you know, once in 10 years, I I can live with that. But yeah, particularly in the U S you know, when I carry my book around, um, that gives me entree, obviously, that, that other folks wouldn't have.
0: Nice. Whenever you walk into stores and you see copies of your book on the shelf, do you wind up like signing copies for the owners and things like that?
1: I have a couple of times, yeah. Sweet. yeah. And, and the nice thing, it, it also was published a few years ago uh, in Spanish in Mexico. Cool. So some of those botanicas will also have um, the, the Spanish edition as well, because you know, a lot of their clientele, obviously, are... Hispanophone Spanish speakers.
0: Yeah. So, as, and I know that you're like trilingual. I know you speak Portuguese and Spanish really well. Did you do the translations of the book yourself?
1: I did not. I did not. And sometimes I rant about this on Twitter. <laughs>
0: um,
1: I, I am not a professional translator, um, and folks are at their best translating into their native language. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, my wife is Mexican, so she will. Translate some of my pathos articles into Spanish, but on the other hand, I take care of translating Spanish into English. Awesome. So so it was a, it was a professional um, Mexico city based translator who translated my book and did a great job.
0: Okay, cool. Well, let's get into the book a little bit, but first of all, where is Santa Muerte most popular in all of Mexico? Can you give kind of like a geographical pinpoint for the audience about like, what are some regions that are maybe more or less like really popular with Santa Muerte?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And, and, You know, I cannot answer that uh, statistically or scientifically because we do not have any systematic surveys. I keep pleading with Pew Foundation to get involved and do a survey. But I I, I think with some, some degree of confidence, I can say that if there's one of the 31 Mexican states where she's particularly popular... It's going to be the uh, the eastern state, the Gulf Coast state of Veracruz. And why Veracruz? Well, Veracruz is home to like the famous witchcraft town called yep. Catemaco, where some myths of her origin story actually say that Santa Muerte arose there. I, I don't think there's any, any concrete evidence of that. But nonetheless, because of the kind of Caribbean, Afro-Cuban influence on Veracruz and the demographics of the population, uh, and, and all the news stories I see flowing out of that state, I think it's Veracruz where she's probably most popular. Um, also, I'd say Mexico City, um, particularly in the working class barrios. Again, it's in the most notorious uh, uh, contraband, crime-infested barrio, Tepito where she first emerges publicly again with, with the quesadilla vendor, um, Doña Queta, uh, her real name is Enrique de Romero. Um, but at this point, she's everywhere. Um, I recently was in, in Chiapas and was really curious to find that if she had followers among um, Mayan indigenous people there and lo and behold, she does. So she's, her, her, her territorial coverage in Mexico is, is complete. Um, at this point, I would also say that she might have a disproportionate following in northern Mexico, particularly on the border as well. But but again, this will be kind of a public plea to Pew or yeah. Gallup. Please come in and and give us some actual numbers on how many devotees we have.
0: That is awesome. OK, so you just mentioned a name, Enrique Romero. So let's talk about a few major figures that people should know. And the three names that jump out at me in the book are Enrique Romero Enrique de Vargas and David Romo. Who are these folks, and why do they matter?
1: Wow! Wow! You've really done your homework here. Um, yeah. Again, the the great godmother, la madrina, of uh, of the cult is is um, Enrique Romero, who again unintentionally turns you know takes the skeleton saint out of the closet. Um, Helps it transition into the public devotion is by setting out setting outside her her life size effigy at uh, Halloween two thousand one. She uh, she continues. She's there in Tepito. She's uh, late seventies, um, but her husband was murdered a couple of years ago uh, in this drive by shooting, and that's really kind of put a damper on her. On her enthusiasm, I mean the 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 public the public rosary service that she initiated um, about 15 years ago continues and everything, but she's starting to step in the background also because of health issues. She's she's battled lung cancer, other problems. Um, the other figure that you mentioned, Enrique Vargas, also uh, recently. Uh, passed away in December of last year, and she, she, for a number of years, really had been kind of the public spokesperson of Santa Muerte in Mexico, and the most important agent of trying to institutionalize and organize the faith. She, uh, she has an organization uh, called Santa Muerte International. Uh, a big temple based on the gritty outskirts of Mexico city. In fact, it's some of us might've seen the, the largest uh, effigy of Santa Muerte. That's fiberglass, black fiberglass, um, grim repress, 72 feet um, in the, uh, in the Mexico city suburb of Tutitlan. So, so she, um, she took over the temple after her son, uh, who's known as Comandante Pantera Uh, commander Panther um, born Jonathan, Jonathan Legaria Vargas was gunned down in a hail of bullets in 2008. Anyway, she, she had been traveling throughout Mexico also to the U S Colombia, Costa Rica. And at the time of her death in January had scores of major Santa Muerte temples and, and shrines across Mexico. Uh, New York City, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Dallas under her command. Um, so that was really this, this, this kind of first major impetus at trying to institutionalize and organize the faith. Um, her daughter just recently became the successor, and it, it's kind of yet to be determined what the fate of the organization with is with her 30-something daughter. Um, the third figure that you mentioned, David Romo, was the first public spokesperson of Santa Muerte who uh, who was the pioneer in founding the first official Church of Santa Muerte, uh, also in Tepito in 2003. He filed all the papal, pa- paperwork and was able to secure legal recognition for the Church of Santa Muerte. And that, that made Mexican religious history because it was the first time any Santa Muerte organization had gained Uh, Legal status in Mexico. However, the legal status was was very short-lived. It was rescinded in 2005 under the then President Fox administration uh, from pressure of the Catholic Church Catholic Church not happy about (laughs) about (laughs) Devotion to a death saint, uh, Especially when a lot of these uh, a lot of these devotees still could still consider themselves to be Catholic so under pressure from from the hierarchy of the Catholic Church uh it was rescinded in 2005 um none the, and so so he uh he kind of took to the airwaves and 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 was was really calling for i think at one point he called for jihad a holy war against the catholic church oh, man. Or, because he, he he knew that they were behind the uh, revocation of his legal status and so he led a number of um marches in mexico city protesting I think he even tried to file with uh, United Nations Human Rights, um, protesting that as well. Anyway, he uh, he continued as the kind of very acerbic public face of Santa Muerte, and then um, and then when was it? Uh, 2011, I believe. He ends up being arrested for being part of for being the money man. Of a kidnapping ring in Mexico City, which specialized in kidnapping um, older folks.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And along with the band of kidnappers was sentenced to, I believe, 60 years in prison. So there he is languishing in prison in Mexico City. His temple is still there. His, His wife took over um and i haven't been for a few years but from folks who have been i hear that that it's kind of in decline and the attendance is pretty sparse um but but you know he was the real pioneer in in legal status and founding the first church and such and obviously has has faded away from the scene uh as he's serving his 60 something year
0: sentence. Oh my gosh. Okay, and you just mentioned that you have been to David Romo's church. Um so in the book, like you go to these places. Like you're not just writing about it. You are seriously on the ground doing this work. And so in the book, there was a scene and now talking to you it's really great because now I can like hear all of the stories that you wrote in the book like I can hear it in your own voice. And there's a scene that I absolutely loved Where you write about like scurrying through the streets of Mexico City to the home of Dona Queta, where the first public shrine was set up in 2001, and you're writing about your urgent pace, and you're with your family, and before it was over, you all hightailed it out of there to uh, to avoid what Enriqueta warned um, about thieves. And bandits. So this work sounds a little nerve wracking, like, <laughs> personal safety wise. And you mentioned earlier that like everybody warmly receives you. But have there been any like tough situations where your motivations were challenged to uh, to keep on doing this?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, and I think this is the reason why. Why seven years after its initial publication, my devoted to death remains the only book in English because because if you're going to do research on the ground, particularly as as a non-Mexican, this can present some challenges. Right. And particularly because of the associations with drug trafficking. And I had never done sustained field research in Mexico prior to this. Um, I started my career as a Brazil specialist. Mm -hmm. And so despite the fact that that my wife from the western state of Michoacan and all the families there this is my first time doing this and and obviously you know some folks could be suspicious um you know is he DEA is he you know you know who is he for real so within this context of, of being hyper aware of that and with all my wife's family in Michoacan, which has unfortunately been one of the epicenters of the ongoing drug war. Two major cartels there, La, La Familia Michoacana, and then the Knights Templar. In fact, they were active when I was doing my research. So, you know, within that context of, of really having to go to some places um, that uh, could be risky, I tried to take as much precautions as possible. For example, in the, in the scene you described in Topito, I tried not to be at Topito at night. Mm-hmm. And, and the, really, the really nice thing about the shrine, which of course is the most important shrine in the devotional world of Santa Muerte there in Topito, is it's just a couple blocks away from the Tepito subway station. Mm-hmm. And so um, so you have a fairly quick exit out in just two blocks. Um, so, you know, in interviewing people, I mean, I'm sure I interviewed people involved in the drug trade, but obviously I'm not asking about that. Yeah, um, And they're usually not offering any information. So, you know, certain subjects I just stayed away from. And um, I don't know, I, I, I guess the the most challenging thing was sometimes in Depito, I'd have people who are obviously on drugs, um, uh, teens, maybe huffing glue, who'd come up and, and be somewhat aggressive and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing I really couldn't handle. Yeah. Um, and here I am living another day, right? For so, sure. So I did. I did take as much precautions as possible and and was really, really mostly concerned about the family and in Michoacán and didn't want to do anything that, uh, that, you know, might jeopardize them. Um, And let me just end this part by saying, I think it also helped that often in the early stage of my research in Mexico, my Mexican wife, Fabiola was with me. And and sometimes would do interviews, particularly with with women devotees. And so I think sometimes that also helped. That you know we're this Mexican American tandem as well. So it wasn't just me, the lone gringo,
0: gotcha. during the research. I love it. Um. You, so earlier you mentioned that Dona Ketta's husband was assassinated. Is she safer in her neighborhood in her with her like history within Santa Muerte, or is she like? in danger still because you know, I'm curious about her, her level of status and respect due to her association with Santa Muerte.
1: Yeah, I would say, yeah, I would, uh, yeah, I would say that, that she is mostly untouchable. Um, but that obviously does not extend to family members of hers. Mm. Um, uh, Again, it's a really tough neighborhood, gang infested. Um, and her family has been there for a long time, and she has she has, I think, seven or eight sons. Um, and so, you know this, I don't know, this could have been related to to activities of family members and such. but but I think her status is just is just legendary at this point. And, and even if some gangsters uh, might have a beef with her, I, I would say that she's pretty much untouchable, and especially so since she's she's almost an octogenarian here yeah. as well.
0: Okay, so there are some competing narratives about the origin of the folk saint Santa Muerte, but first of all, just very briefly, can you describe what a folk saint generally is?
1: Right, So so Latin America is kind of interesting and unique in that, you know, on one hand, this is the most Catholic region on Earth. Some 40% of the world's 1.2 billion Catholics uh, are Latin American. Our um, two, are two lar- largest Catholic populations on Earth are Latin American countries, first Brazil uh, and then Mexico. Um, of course, Catholicism brought over as part of the conquest and colonization by both the Spanish and the Portuguese. Um, So, you know, this this has historically been the most thoroughly Catholic region on earth. Uh, The Catholic Church, believe it or not, has some (laughs) 10,000 saints to choose from, Um, but apparently those 10,000 saints uh, were not enough for many Latin Americans. Why would that be? Well, most of these Catholic saints, of course, uh, were Europeans who lived mm. centuries ago and who don't necessarily speak to or resonate with particularly working class Mexicans, Argentines, Paraguayans. And so, so maybe in this vacuum or void of a lack of resonance of European saints who lived centuries ago, Latin Americans create these, these folk saints these grassroots, miracle-working figures, who in most cases were, were actual real Latin American men and women who were born on Latin American soil and often died tragic, violent deaths, um, often related to cases of injustice. And then a few years after their deaths, develop reputations that spread initially by word of mouth for being um, efficacious miracle workers, and so folks will gather either at the site of their death, often a murder, or at their graves, graveside, and and petition these um, deceased souls for for miracles of all kinds of all stripes, but typically focusing on on the main ones of health, wealth, and love. And so, for example. Um, before santa muerte comes big we have the folk saint of northern mexico who's associated with the mexican narco el chapo guzman who was just sentenced to life uh by a new york jury uh named jesus malverde um who was kind of the original narco saint from the state of sinaloa um we have another figure from the 1920s and 1930s who is an actual folk healer, a curandero, named Nino Fidencio, who's still big in northern Mexico and Texas. So anyway, most of these, so they're not recognized by, by the Catholic Church. Most of them were real Latin American men and women. Um, and there's scores of them who, in many cases, um, are more popular than Catholic saints in various regions of latin america so 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 santa muerte fits within that paradigm however where i think we can distinguish herself from distinguish her from fellow folk saints is that at this point in her the development of her devotion she cannot be traced back to any single mexican woman Mm -hmm. whoever whoever walked on mexican soil she at this point is seen as personifying death itself. Maybe I should say death herself because we're talking about a female representation of death. And so I would argue in a way that that maybe bestows upon her a greater potency because, because, because devotees really see her as the literal face, the skull, the skeletal uh, form of, of death itself, right? So, so I think Santa Muerte is probably best best kind of cataloged in that folk saint. But again, this is a, this is a rapidly developing um, religious tradition, and she might morph into something else in the future. But this, this point, I think folk saint is probably the best classification.
0: In the book, you write that Santa Muerte was first cited in literature in the 1790s and then went clandestine for a century and a half. In your scholarly opinion and research, what is the most likely origin of Santa Muerte?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Good question. Um, in my opinion, she is a syncretism. She is a fusion of the Spanish Grim Reaper. And why do I say Reaper? Well, in in Mediterranean Europe in Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, even France, the Grim Reaper more often was presented as in a female figure. Thus, I kind of coined the term Grim Reaper. And so. As part of its uh, evangelization of the indigenous people of the Americas, the Spanish Catholic Church brings over the figure of, her name is La Parca, which actually translates literally as the parched one, because if you're a skeleton, you're perpetually parched, right? Mm -hmm. And so indeed, one one of the main offerings, one of the mainstays at Santa Muerte altars is water, because... Because she always has to hydrate as as only bones, right? Um, anyway, so the Spanish Catholic Church brings over the figure of the Grim Reapers, La Parca, as as a representation, as a personification of death in its um, in its evangelization of the indigenous people, right? Because because they're completely ignorant. Of, of the religious belief systems of the Aztecs and the Mayans and all of the hundreds of, of Native American civilizations. They have no idea, <laughs> for example, that both the Aztecs and the Mayans have several death deities. For example, the Aztecs have the female death deity, Mixtecasiwato, who with her husband presides over the Aztec underworld Mictlan. The Spanish don't know this, right, because... because Native Americans aren't in the Bible. So there's no doubt that in certain places like central Mexico, Guatemala, Argentina, Paraguay, some of the indigenous people, when they see the figure of the Grim Reapers, obviously make the association with their own death deities, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. But, but let me backtrack and, and, and say that the figure of the Grim Reaper. Emerges in Europe during the time during the, the 14th century, during the Black Plague, which which puts about a third of Europeans into an early early grave. This is really the first time that we have death being personified uh, in the skeletal form of a human being. But for Europeans, this is a more mere artistic representation of death. Uh, Europeans did not see the Grim Reaper as a miracle-working supernatural figure. They did not pray to the Grim Reaper. And so obviously the indig- some of the indigenous people in the Americas make that association with their extant death deities. And so they end up morphing, transition transforming the European Grim Reapers into Santa Muerte, the the the, the miracle-working supernatural figure. Um, based, again, on, on their beliefs in death deities. And so I should add, because we, we haven't had it, but Santa Muerte, while she is unique in being the sole female folk saint of death in the Americas, actually has two male cousins who are also skeletal folk saints of death. Um, one in Argentina and Paraguay called um, Santa Muerte, and the other in Guatemala and Chiapas, the southernmost state of Mexico, called um, Rey Pascual. So, so she's not alone. There's two other uh, skeletal folk saints. She just happens to be the sole female one, and by far the most popular one. So, it's 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 to conclude here. It's a it's a syncretism between the Grim Reapers of Spain and and beliefs in death deities among certain indigenous groups.
0: Gotcha. Okay. That's so fascinating. And so I know that there's like the practice that people do is they do offerings with like candles and booze and drinks. Um, And then you also organize the book around a framework around the multicolored candles of devotion. So candles seem to play a large devotional role when the adherents ask the pretty lady for something. So you describe each color at length in the book, which um, I encourage everyone to read, obviously, because you're going to get so much detail in the book. But can you give like a description of the importance of the candles, what they mean, why candles are so important in Santa Muerte devotion?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, as you point out, the different colored candles of uh, Santa Muerte votives actually form the organizational framework of, of my book. All the ch- For example, Chapter 1 is the brown candle on history and origins of the cult. Chapter 4 is the red candle for love and passion. Uh, chapter seven is the green candle for law and justice. So it's kind of ironic that this happened because I'm mildly colorblind. Oh, fun! <laughs> and and often have to ask people, um, is this a yellow candle or a gold candle? <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was so ironic that I ended up having to use colors, but it seems so natural. So yeah. Um, there are these basic colors, all that represent um, basic um, types of miracles and petitions that people are looking for. And, and I'll go quickly to, to the number one seller in Mexico, which is the red candle, um, uh, not of blood, not of blood and murder, but of love and passion. Awesome. And, and, and I love talking about this because on both sides of the border, the mass media stories of Santa Muerte, always ignore her really really important role as love doctor. Yeah. And, and again, this is the number one selling color colored votive candle in Mexico because so many people are looking for for Santa Muerte to do love magic, particularly aggrieved women. And this and, and in fact, when Santa Muerte resurfaces in the Mexican historical record in the 1940s, from the 1940s to the 1980s, both Mexican and American anthropologists doing field work in Mexico report Santa Muerte only operating one type of miracle, and that is love magic. She's exclusively a love sorceress from the 1940s to the 1980s. It's only in the late 1980s that she starts to expand her range, her repertoire of miracles. Um, One of the most interesting candles Two is the seven color candle, because, you know, lots of folks are looking for favors and miracles, more than just one. Right. So the seven colors is the rainbow one for folks who are looking for multiple miracles from from Santa Muerte. Um, The black candle is one of the candles that you will least see publicly and the most controversial one a lot of devotees will tell you that they use it for protection and justice matters of justice, which they do. But it also, because it's black can be used for matters of revenge and taking out rivals as well. In fact, some of these Santa Muerte, uh, candles have written, uh, muerte contra mis enemigos or death, death to my enemies. And you can imagine, particularly if you are a narco, Um, You've got enemies who you'd like to neutralize both, you know, rival cartel members and law enforcement as well. So yeah, the candles and the candles are also really important because in this economy of scarcity, most devotees in Mexico are working class folk who don't necessarily even know where their next meal is going to come from. So the cheapest, the most accessible uh ritual paraphernalia item are candles, which which often can be bought for a dollar fifty or two dollars. So if you if you can't afford a little statuette or anything else for your altar, you probably you probably have an- enough cash to buy one of these candles
0: gotcha okay i want to i want to go back to that police officer topic for just a second there seems to be an irony regarding followers of santa morte just a little bit with the law enforcement and the narco traffickers and their relationship um so many of the narco traffickers are santa mortis praying to get their meth and heroin and marijuana to the customers while they're also being hunted by Santa Muerte adherent police officers seeking her protection from being killed by narco traffickers, so what are outside observers like me um, who are you know not willing to just pigeonhole the godmother into one specific role? What are we to make of this because she seems fairly easy to stereotype whenever we look at this relationship between police officers and narco traffickers? fighting against each other, but both of whom are devoted to the same saint?
1: That that That's an excellent question. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, my my research partner, Dr. Kate Kingsbury, who I believe you're going to be interviewing soon on a, maybe exorcism or yeah, another we're, topic. Yeah, we're
0: talking soon. I'm excited.
1: Great. She and I have collaborated a lot recently on Santa Muerte. And we have a recent article that we penned in which we... In which we put forth Santa Muerte more as really the matroness, the, the, the matron saint of the Mexican drug war writ large. Because just as you say, it is not the fact, it is not true that only she only has narco devotees. She also has a robust following among Mexican law enforcement. And I don't have exact numbers in front of me. I wish I do. But it's, it's my impression that she is especially popular among municipal police officers who tend to be on the front lines and who tend to, to take the heaviest casualties uh, in the ongoing war against drug trafficking as well. So, so yeah, she, she really, because she has such a robust presence among law enforcement, she really is the patroness of the drug war of, of, of both sides. And even further than that of the Mexican penal system, it's been a while now since she's been the most popular tattoo among Mexican prison inmates. When I interviewed my nephew a few years ago for the book, who is a state prison guard in the state capital of Morelia, the state capital of Michoacan, he estimated a few years ago that some quarter, some 25% of his fellow prison guards, forget the inmates, his fellow prison guards were devotees of death, of wow. saint death as well. So the penal system, the drug war, um, Santa Muerte really is, uh, is is the patroness of this.
0: Awesome. Okay. So I also have, on the other hand, I have an impression of Santa Muerte and earlier you alluded to the marginalized and I want to run this idea past you. So to me is Santa Muerte like a religious practice for marginalized and underserved people who are just trying to make sense and seek answers to their nearly impossible lives.
1: Um, I would say, yes, she is to a large extent. Um, I think she is disproportionately popular in Mexico among uh, working class millennials and more specifically, even more so women uh, in the cities um, who are not practicing Catholics and and who often feel like maybe other religious figures, such as St. Jude, um have not come through for them. I don't know how many Santa Muerte devotees in Mexico I interviewed who told me that they used to be uh, devotees of St. Jude, but on a particular occasion, they asked St. Jude for a favor and he never came through. So a friend, for example, might recommend that they try the bony lady, one of her main monikers. Yeah. La um, and then they'll say, yeah, so, so, so my aunt told me to try La Wasuda, the bony lady, and within a week, um, she had granted me that new job that I was after when St. Judith ignored, ignored me for many months. Um, so I think that, that her devotion would be disproportionately that. However, since I guesstimate some 10 to 12 million devotees which to put that into comparative global perspective, 10 to 12 million devotees, there are only 14 million Jews in the entire entire world after millennia of existence of this particular religion, Um, just to show you how how fast it's mushroomed only since 2001. Since we're talking about millions of devotees, there's obvious diversity. I've met physicians, lawyers, lawyers, people who'd be upper middle class, uh, in Mexican society who are her devotees as well. So while it's disproportionately young urban working class in Mexico, she does have devotees followers from, from all walks of life. In fact, uh, I have a colleague who has a master's degree in Mexico city and, and, uh, taught in Europe for a while who is a devotee as well.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, as the only person with the only scholarly study out on this, you know, tradition, do you do any like consulting with the Mexican government, with the American government based on your work? Like, how are you, um, putting this knowledge to service to make, you know, like our societies better and more peaceful?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't done any governmental consulting and I, I tend to shy away from that because, um, you know, I don't want to compromise my neutrality and objectivity, which, Obviously, which yeah, that particularly, makes sense. particularly in the Mexican case could could be a problem. and particularly g- given our the the state of our bilateral relations lately, right? True, yeah, right. but I, I do do a fair amount of consulting um, both for documentaries. Uh, did a recent one for um, a will Smith produced film. That's uh, that's coming out in a few months, in which which Santa Muerte is going to be played by Kate Del Castillo, who's one of you know Mexi- Mexico's top actresses. Yeah, she's huge. And so they came they came to me um, and also my colleague Dr. Kingsbury to make sure that everything was was as it should be for this particular scene, um, and most importantly, I, I've I've um, done legal consultation on an increasing number of cases here in the United States that either involve asylum where somebody um, somebody might make the claim that they're a Santa Muerte devotee. And if they go back to Mexico, they're going to be persecuted or for some criminal cases as well, which have involved Santa Muerte as well. So yeah, i most of my consultation is, is for film uh, TV and legal.
0: Awesome. I love how present you are in the book, too. Like, you are completely a character in the book. Like, you are very there, um, which you don't often see with academic work, and I really appreciate it as a reader. Did you ever question putting yourself in the book as, as much as you did?
1: Yeah, that, that's that's another excellent question. It, it, I really want to insert myself um, in this book. This is my third book. I already had been a full professor. <laughs> so <laughs> when you're when you're in a full professor, you kind of have more more leeway, more more leverage to kind of do what you want. And and so yeah, I was I was not very present in my previous two books, particularly which my my second book which was densely academic, which was designed to to earn me promotion to full professor. So yeah, I wanted I wanted to be part of the narrative I wanted to write a book that was accessible to a general audience beyond the ivory tower as well. And so, yeah, I knew that I had to be in there and I really hadn't done that before. So, so, um, it was, it was sometimes a real challenge to strike that balance of, of inserting myself, but, but I didn't want to do it too much. Um, and, um, I, I hope that I, I struck a, a good balance and and having me present but but not overwhelming the narrative.
0: Yeah. I mean as I'm reading, like I get the impression that you had fun writing this book. You know, that's what comes through to me. Your voice comes through as like I legitimately love and enjoy doing this work, which is fantastic as a reader and somebody who appreciates this type of work um i loved seeing that and i also love following you on twitter because you are so active as a field researcher Uh, i'm curious what you are working on right now and if you can sort of tell listeners what like a typical vacation for dr andrew chestnut looks like and how it might differ from what other people might think of as a vacation
1: (laughs) um yeah so So my, my current research project is again, I, I hold chair in Catholic studies. Um, and, and of course there is no Santa Muerte without the Spanish Catholic church. Um, Even though the Catholic church has condemned her. In fact, in Mexico, they, they rebuke her on a weekly basis. Some bishops or some priest is out there every week condemning her. Um, but yeah, now I'm engaged on, on a book project focusing on Catholic death culture. Um, things like Memento Mori, um, skeletal reminders of of death that, that, that come from Renaissance medieval Europe Um, relics of the saints um, um, which, which kind of tie into Santa Muerte as holy bones. Um, I've been to all the major ossuaries or charnel houses in Europe. And so all these different elements of, and there's also there's also a number of skeletal Catholic saints as well who look just like Santa Muerte, uh, mostly in, in Catholic churches in in Germanic and and Germany and Austria and Switzerland, which I was actually touring for the book project last summer. So so I'm continuing with my interest in, in thanatology or death studies, but but in a more a more kind of uh, standard Catholic way. At this point so yeah it's it's focusing on both um europe and the americas and so on my recent spring break i was in new orleans which historically has been the most catholic city in the country and obviously has a very um interesting death culture also because of the presence of of voodoo in the city as well so i was in new orleans doing doing research because i'd also like to include um, the us in the book so um terms of vacation um I I don't know it's just like when I travel so often it's for research um but but for example I was in my wife's hometown of of Morelia Michoacan, for Christmas and I think that was a vacation (laughs) I I try not to do too much research um but yeah so much of my travel really is, is either for conferences or research um so those kind of vacations that don't involve that don't happen a lot
0: Tell the, uh, tell the listeners about skeleton and what you've created there with your colleagues. Cause it is truly fantastic.
1: Oh yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So, so I've had a, uh, multi-year collaboration with uh, researcher, David B. Metcalf and, uh, he and I, uh, what is it now? five years ago started this um, site called skeleton.com, which is which is the world's only site of Santa Muerte news and analysis. And so over the five years we have scores of, of articles written by both of us, but we also have a number of devotees who have shared their narratives about how they have become devotees, both Mexican, and, and American devotees as well. Um, we've had guest columnists. And so it's, it's really kind of an interesting, eclectic site of, of news and analysis where, where all voices um, are welcome. It's nonprofit. We don't take any advertising. Uh, so it's not monetized. And uh, that's been one of our, our main platforms for ongoing research of Santa Muerte.
0: So, uh, tell us where we can find you on Twitter because your Twitter account is one of the ones I appreciate most out of all the accounts that I follow.
1: Okay. I'm Andrew Chestnut. There's no middle T in Chestnut. Andrew Chestnut one, uh, under the moniker, Dr. Death and Divinity.
0: I love your monikers, man. Keep changing them. (laughs) They're so fun. It's like Dr. Death Studies, Dr. Supernatural. I've loved all of yours. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Okay, well, Dr. Andrew Chestnut, I have appreciated this hour so much. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Your energy and your uh, devotion to this topic is just palpable and energizing. So I appreciate your time and all the fantastic stories that you've told us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, and I really appreciate the the great questions. You were really good at doing your homework.
0: Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Stribing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at Classical Ideas at Outlook.com.